0: don't know why that's not moving on. (laughs) Okay, put the next. Ah, yeah. So, just to focus on those words again. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus didn't just make a passing comment. He focused quite a lot on these words. And I I have a lot of sympathy with the crowd in reacting quite badly to them, and I wonder why we don't react more strongly. Why don't we react more strongly to these words? They're very visceral. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink His blood. I wonder whether some of it is that they've become very familiar. We we say something along these lines. They they, um, allude to the Last Supper and the Eucharist and the communion that we share. So they have become very familiar words. We could say there's symbolism. That would be a very reasonable thing to do. Symbolism is throughout the Bible, and the bread is used as a symbol in the Bible in other ways. It's a symbol of God's presence when it's found on the altar in the Old Testament. It's a symbol of God's provision through manna. It's a symbol of hospitality. Or maybe we should consider it a metaphor Again, that would be reasonable. Jesus talks about metaphor a lot. He talks about parables. He speaks in the language of metaphor. So it would be a reasonable assumption to think, well, maybe this is a metaphor. And we talk, don't we, about our daily bread. Well, I think what we're alluding to there is that Jesus is the word, and by immersing ourselves in the word on a daily basis, um, then we are uh, taking our daily bread. So we could also say this is metaphor. And I don't think those things are wrong. I think those are reasonable things to do but I'm not sure they're the whole story. I wonder if we are missing something when we um, reduce this to metaphor or symbolism. I wonder whether we are missing a spiritual truth. And by that, I'm wondering whether we're missing something about the experience, the experience of feeding on the flesh of Jesus, something about the transformational capacity. So what, what happens when we eat, when we eat bread? Well, eating's a very intimate thing to do. You put something in your mouth, for heaven's sake, and you swallow it. Just just think about that for a moment. You don't want to put anything in your mouth that you don't trust. You don't want to put anything in your mouth that you don't know what it is. It's a very intimate thing to do. You cannot keep it at arm's length, much as we like to keep some of this stuff at arm's length. If you're going to eat it, it's very intimate. And when you eat something, it becomes integral to who you are. We are what we eat. If we eat healthily, we become healthy. If you eat unhealthily, you become unhealthy. So what does that mean in terms of feeding on the flesh of Jesus? Does that enable us to become more Christ-like? Does that enable us to become more like the person that we were created to be? It's very personal. You can't get in my body and understand what it feels like when I eat something, and I can't get inside of yours and understand what it feels like for you to eat something. And also, the way we eat, the way we engage with food is very different. I tend to eat on the hoop a little bit, grab some toast, whereas I know other people who will never do that. They will always prepare something nice to eat and savor it and make the most of it. So it's very personal. And I wonder if there's something in there that Jesus is trying to help us to understand when it comes to feeding of his flesh. This is just to remind me to, to say that the word pisteo, which is the Greek for um, believe in this passage, has, has two um, meanings. It can mean to hold an opinion and it can also mean to trust and that sometimes it's helpful to put trust in the place of belief when we're trying to understand some of these passages. So, what does it actually mean? It's not like saying, it's not like Sharon saying that we are to feed on the flesh of Jesus, but what does it actually mean in real life? Jesus' teaching was very practical. It was grounded in real life. Um, and this is a very real thing to think about, eating the bread. And a writer called Henri Nuon has pointed out that, Jesus, that the way that Jesus shares the bread is very particular. If you look at uh, the three um, accounts in the Synoptic Gospels in, in Mark, Luke and Matthew, the wording is always the same. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it. Interestingly, the parable of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few miracles to occur in all four Gospels. I think that's quite significant, and I wonder why. I wonder if it's because it's about sharing bread. And if you look at those accounts, in, in, again, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, those same words, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it. And on the road to Emmaus... Again, those words, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. Now, if we're to believe that Jesus is that bread... What's Jesus telling us about the way we engage with the bread? What's Jesus telling us about what these words mean in his life? And as we take Jesus into ourselves, what's Jesus telling us about the way this pattern works out in our own life? Well, let's take each of those one at a time. The bread is taken. It's chosen. Jesus has already said in this passage that he is here to do the will of God. He's not just randomly here. He is here with a purpose. He's chosen. But before he does any of it, before he steps into the shoes of being the Messiah, God declares that he is loved. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Now if Jesus needs to hear those words before he does anything. Before he has fulfilled any of his purpose, Jesus is, is, um, God is declaring his unconditional love. How much more do we need to hear those words? You need to hear that you are unconditionally loved. You were loved before you ever came into creation. Not because of anything you've done, or any decisions you've made, or any belief you do and do not have, you were unconditionally and are unconditionally loved. And we need, when we feed on the person of Jesus, we need to to make that a reality in our lives. And why is that important? Because if we can imbibe, take within ourselves, the knowledge that we are unconditionally loved, that gives us our sense of worth. It gives us our significance. It gives us our security. And of course we're going to find those elsewhere with relationships, but if our foundation is having those in God, then it, it helps us to engage with other relationships in a healthier way because we already have our significance and our self-worth through being made in the image of God and being unconditionally loved. And then Jesus gives, that gives thanks. He blesses the bread. And in the same way that we need to understand that we are unconditionally loved, we need to look into the eyes of each other and know that we are all made in God's image, we are all unconditionally loved, and we need to learn to bless each other on that basis. It's good to thank each other for the things we do, for doing the PA and the projection and the setting up, but we need to learn to bless each other, not for what we do, but for who we are. On Christmas Day this year, we did one of the most beautiful things I've ever done on Christmas Day. N.D. and his family blessed us, and we blessed N.D. and his family. It was a beautiful thing, and it said, we are blessing each other not for what we are doing, but simply for who we are. Before Jesus gives the bread, He breaks it. We do not feed on a nice, clean, shiny, resurrected body. We feed on a broken, blooded, humiliated, betrayed body. That is the body that we take into ourselves, that we feed on. We don't need to be broken, we already are broken. We are already broken people. Our upbringing will have left us with voices in our head. Most of us will have been criticized as we're growing up. Most of us have got an inner critic, somebody who condemns you and puts you down. Life happens. We get hurt, we get betrayed we get humiliated, we let ourselves down, we fail, we betray others, we humiliate others. We deal with mental illness, we have depression, anxiety. And sometimes things just happen to us like ill health, or a broken relationship, or um, a loss of a job. And the thing is, we need to own that brokenness. We need to own that brokenness. As N.D. said last week, we cannot go from the starter to the dessert. We need to own that brokenness, which is easier said than done. We often don't see the brokenness. We often suppress it and hide it. But why is it important? Because if we don't own that brokenness, if we don't see that brokenness, we live out of a false self, we project, Somebody that's not really us and not the person that God created us to be. And that's hard work. It's really hard work living out of a false self. It's much healthier to live out of the person God created us to be. And so we need to own our brokenness. And we need to allow the ingestion of the broken body to illuminate our brokenness and to heal our brokenness. And just for us to accept and live into our brokenness. and then of course we don't do this in isolation in the same way that Jesus' broken body was given to us given to us on the cross um, and the restoration that comes through that, we are given out then, we do this in community with each other um, and we do this from a place of being loved and blessed and broken and that way we we find out how we are, our true selves, within a community, as we interact with each other. Now, these things do not occur in a nice, neat way. I don't do nice, neat. I think messy, (laughs) is, in my experience, what life is like. And these things interact with each other. Sometimes, it's only when we're broken it's only when we fail, it's only when we're no longer that shiny person who's running around running the church, or is a super mum, or a super wife, or a super husband. Sometimes it's only when we're broken that we really discover how much God loves us. We discover that God loves us, even from that place of brokenness. Sometimes it's in in the giving, it's when we are out in community, rubbing up against each other, that we discover our brokenness. So these things interact, and, and it's lifelong. We never arrive. This is a lifelong process. And I believe it's the stuff of transformation. I believe it's the stuff of transformation. I believe it is the stuff that restores us to become more Christ-like, more like the people we are creating to be. As I say, this is not a done deal. It doesn't happen this side of eternity, but it is the process, and a lifelong process. And what are we to think of this alongside this? Do, do they, are these in opposition to each other? Are, are, do they complement each other? I think they do. I think, I think Jesus is telling us different truths. I think this is a one-time event. Jesus' body broken on the cross is a one-time uh, event of redemption for our salvation. And it's independent of us. We didn't do anything to make that happen. That was Jesus' work. But this, this is an ongoing, lifelong process. We can't keep. This separate from ourselves, this has to be part of us, integral to us. This has to be something that is an ongoing, regular basis in order for it to be transformative. We have to engage with this. You cannot eat bread, you cannot eat the flesh of Jesus from a distance. It has to be intimate. You might say to me, well, what about when we get an infilling of the Spirit? What about when when there's a miracle or something amazing happens or we get a transcendent experience or we have a, an amazing time of worship? Is that not transformative? Well, we've already had this in this passage. The people who are following Jesus around have seen lots of miracles, but I'm not sure how transformative it was in their lives. So I think the power, the power of those amazing Beautiful to be um, treasured experiences is you know, so in what happens afterwards. What do we do with those experiences? Julian of Norwich, who is a mystic, she had the most amazing visions of Jesus on the cross, incredible, incredible pictures when she was uh, in like a near death experience. She spent twenty years, twenty years pondering and talking and teaching and sharing and writing and there's some beautiful writings from julian of norwich that comes out of that experience but it took 20 years this is all very well but what does it actually mean (laughs) you know i'm still talking in sort of concepts and i think again it means different things We, we need to find our own way of feeding on the um the body of Jesus, and N.D. talks about find, uh, going to those places where we are close to God. We don't have to write a recipe for the bread, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are lots of people who have gone before us who have found ways of connecting with God, and we need to, to draw on those. We need to, um, to draw on spiritual disciplines, retreats, pilgrimages. We need to draw on each other. Yeah, this, this church has a wealth of spiritual transformation with it. How do you feed on the flesh of Jesus? We need to share with each other what this means to us. I'm going to share a little bit of my story, but that's my story, and it would be good to hear other people's stories too. So I'm a thinker. I overthink everything. I kind of walk around in my head, and I've deconstructed and reconstructed my faith I don't know how many times. I'm good at reading books, I'm good at talking about it. I'm very good at keeping God at arm's length as a concept. I know that. And I realized that I needed to address that, that I needed to experience God, I needed to experience Jesus, I needed to experience what it means to feed on the flesh of Jesus. And so I signed up for an Ignatian retreat in daily life. I love Ignatian spirituality. Ignatius speaks about spiritual exercises. He believes that in the same way we need to do physical exercise, we need to do spiritual exercise. And those of you that do Lectio 365, the evening um, meditation is the examine where you reflect on your day and where you've you've seen Jesus working. Um, And Ignatian spirituality is all about noticing. So the retreat in daily life, you don't go away for a retreat, um, you you'd, you'd take on a r- retreat in your daily life. And the reason I went for this is that I'm not a person of routine. I don't have a routine. I, I'm a person who focuses on one thing and then focuses on something else. I don't do routine, so I, do, I struggle with like, the monastic um, routines of, of daily living. Some of you will find those helpful, I don't. But I do live in my head too much, and so noticing is a good thing for me to do. And so each week I met with a guide, an Ignatian guide, and she would ask me, what have I noticed that week? Where have I noticed God working? Where have I noticed God's absence? Where have I trusted God? And where haven't I trusted God? And what did it feel like when you were trusting God? How do you know when you are trusting God? And can you recognize those, those times when you're in God's will and you get that sense of peace? And can you recognize when you're out of God's will and you get that unsettled feeling? Now, let me tell you, when you know that somebody each week is going to ask you <laughs> what you've noticed, what you notice, and it was a helpful thing to do. It helped me to experience Jesus, to experience God, and to notice what was happening in my life. However, my guide was noticing too. And about halfway through, she said, ''Sharon, what are you doing with the hurt you're carrying around?'' At which, t- <laughs> at which case the flood gets opened. I think I cried most of that session. I could hardly say, hurt, what hurt, when she touched on something that I hadn't particularly noticed, but she had. And once she drew my attention to it, I thought, yeah, I'm coming around a shed load of hurt. And I said things like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my hurt here, here at the foot of the cross, or I'm leaving it at the feet of Jesus. And I would say this, and then I'd go back the next week, and that hurt would still be there. And I got to the end of this retreat, and it was helpful. Um, I got a lot out of it, but I was still carrying that uh, hurt around at the end. And it's only reflecting back that I can now see that there was a transformative work happening. But I couldn't tell you exactly when it happened. It didn't happen at the time. It's happened somewhere between then and now. When I've talked to other people, Quite a lot of people say that, that, that you, you do spiritual exercises, you go on retreat, pilgrimage, and you don't always see the benefit straight away, and so, but sometimes you see it later. And I realized that once I'd noticed the hurt, I began to notice the way it was shaping me. I began to notice the hold that it had on me. I began to notice that it made me personalize things. It made me defensive. It made me sometimes hurt others in return. It eroded uh, my trust and my faith. And once I'd noticed that, I then realized and discovered that I do actually have a choice, and that I could choose whether to react out of that hurt or whether to respond, and whether in that space I could learn to Trust Jesus and respond. Trust Jesus for a bigger picture. Trust Jesus that something else was happening, that something else was happening in somebody else's life, that there was a bigger picture I was part of that I couldn't see. I trusted not to major on minors. And that helped to shift that brokenness. Just a word of caution here. Sometimes life throws something really big at you. A significant bereavement, an end-of-life diagnosis, something that really, a deep depression. And in that space, you may not be able to do any of this work. You might just be clinging on, just in survival mode. And in that space, you need people who have learnt to live and own brokenness. You need people alongside you who aren't going to try and fix you, who aren't going to try and solve it, who aren't going to pray simplistic prayers over you, which then just make you feel worse, because you're not, <coughs> you're not responding to that prayer like they would like you to do. And you, have to, um, you, you need those people around you. But even, even in those darkest places, when you come out the other side, you have to learn how to live You will often come out in a different place to when you went in, and you have to learn how to live from a different place. Viktor Frankl is an Auschwitz survivor. You don't get much more taking to the edge of what a human can endure. And he wrote a book, uh, Man Searching for Meaning, where he talks about his experience, and he talks about how it shaped him afterwards. And he realized that, that he had to choose how to live as an Auschwitz survivor. And he said this, he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. So what he's saying, whatever's happened to you, the power that you have left is to choose your response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Now, that's not Christian quote. A lot of what I've said, if you went to see a counsellor, they will talk about coming through a difficult and hard situation. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have significance and relevance to our life. And this is how I've come to understand this truth. I've come to understand this truth as between stimulus and response. So when something triggers something in me, a hurt, or something in my brokenness, and I either react or respond, there is a space. And in in that space is our power to choose to trust before responding. Now, what I've discovered, what I've discovered, is that you can choose to trust even from a place of unbelief. You can choose to trust even from a place of unbelief. And if you choose to trust from a place of unbelief, it is still transformative, because you're not relying on your own ability to believe, you're trusting beyond your own ability to do anything. So between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose to trust before responding. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. It means that our brokenness no longer has power over us. We're choosing to allow the brokenness of Jesus within us, intimately, within ourselves, not, not, not just over there, but within ourselves. We've talked about coming and seeing. I wonder if we also need to talk about taste and see. Taste, experience, taste and see. Let us pray. Father God, enable us to taste and see. Enable us to learn what it is to feed on your flesh. Give each person here a fresh sense of your unconditional love. Enable us to bless each other, not for what we do, but for who we are, made in your image. Help us to own our brokenness. Help us to accept each other as broken people, and to accept others as broken people. Help us to allow your brokenness to restore your image in us and transform us into the people you created us to be. We pray that as we learn how to feed on your flesh, to experience you as the bread of life, that we would share those journeys with each other, that we would be vulnerable enough to share with each other What it means to feed on the flesh of Jesus. Amen. I think I'm handing back.